Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. The second law of thermodynamics is among the most sacred in all of science, but it's always rested on 19th century arguments about probability. New arguments trace its true source to the flows of quantum information. That's next. If you like this podcast, check out The Joy of Why, hosted by me, Steve Strogatz, where curiosity and the pursuit of knowledge take the driver's seat. We ask questions like, why can prolonged sleep deprivation ultimately be fatal? Where do space, time, and gravity come from? What is life? Learn about all that and more on The Joy of Why, wherever you get your podcasts. physical law, there's arguably no principle more sacrosanct than the second law of thermodynamics, the notion that entropy, a measure of disorder, will always stay the same or increase. Nobody's ever seen the second law violated, and that's not expected anytime soon either. But something about the second law troubles physicists. Some are not convinced that we understand it properly or that its foundations are firm. Although it's called a law, it's usually regarded as merely probabilistic. It stipulates that the outcome of any process will be the most probable one. This effectively means the outcome is inevitable given the numbers involved. Yet physicists don't just want descriptions of what will probably happen. Physicist Chiara Marletto of the University of Oxford says they like laws of physics to be exact. Can the second law be tightened up into more than just a statement of likelihoods? A number of independent groups appear to have done just that. They may have woven the second law out of the fundamental principles of quantum mechanics, which some suspect have directionality and irreversibility built into them at the deepest level. According to this view, the second law comes about not because of classical probabilities, but because of quantum effects such as entanglement. It arises from the ways in which quantum systems share information and from cornerstone quantum principles that determine what's allowed to happen and what's not. In this telling, an increase in entropy is not just the most likely outcome of change. It's a logical consequence of the most fundamental resource that we know of, the quantum resource of information. Thermodynamics was conceived in the early 19th century to describe the flow of heat and the production of work. We needed such a theory as steam power drove the Industrial Revolution, and engineers wanted to make their devices as efficient as possible. In the end, thermodynamics wasn't much help in making better engines and machinery. Instead, it became one of the central pillars of modern physics, providing criteria that govern all processes of change. Classical thermodynamics has only a handful of laws, of which the most fundamental are the first and second. The first says that energy is always conserved. 
The second law says that heat always flows from hot to cold. More commonly, this is expressed in terms of entropy, which must increase overall in any process of change. Entropy is loosely equated with disorder. But the Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann formulated it more rigorously as a quantity related to the total number of microstates a system has, how many equivalent ways its particles can be arranged. The second law appears to show why change happens in the first place. At the level of individual particles, the classical laws of motion can be reversed in time. But the second law implies that change must happen in a way that increases entropy. This directionality is widely considered to impose an arrow of time. In this view, time seems to flow from past to future because the universe began in a low entropy state and is heading toward one of even higher entropy. The implication is that eventually heat will spread completely uniformly and there will be no driving force for further change. That's a depressing prospect that scientists of the mid-19th century called the heat death of the universe. Boltzmann's microscopic description of entropy seems to explain this directionality. Many particle systems that are more disordered and have higher entropy vastly outnumber ordered, lower entropy states, so molecular interactions are much more likely to end up producing them. The second law seems then to be just about statistics. It's a law of large numbers. In this view, there's no fundamental reason why entropy can't decrease. Why, for example, all the air molecules in your room can't congregate by chance in one corner. It's just extremely unlikely. Yet, this probabilistic statistical physics leaves some questions hanging. It directs us toward the most probable microstates in a whole ensemble of possible states, and it forces us to be content with taking averages across that ensemble. But the laws of classical physics are deterministic. They allow only a single outcome for any starting point. So where can that hypothetical ensemble of states enter the picture at all, if only one outcome is ever possible? David Deutsch, a physicist at Oxford, has for several years been seeking to avoid this dilemma by developing a theory that he calls a world in which probability and randomness are totally absent from physical processes. He's collaborating with Chiara Marletto on this project called Constructor Theory. It aims to establish not just which processes probably can and can't happen, but which are possible and which are forbidden outright. Constructor theory aims to express all of physics in terms of statements about possible and impossible transformations. It echoes the way thermodynamics itself began. It considers change in the world as something produced by machines or constructors that work in a cyclic fashion. They follow a pattern like that of the famous Carnot cycle, which was proposed in the 19th century to describe how engines perform work. The constructor is like a catalyst, facilitating a process and being returned to its original state at the end. Here's Chiara Marletto. So let's say you have a transformation. You can think of it as some kind of task, such as building a house out of bricks. 
So you can think of a number of different machines that can achieve this. You know, you're given the bricks and you're given the blueprint of what you want to build. You can construct a number of entities that are able to do this transformation to different accuracies. And all of these machines have this property of being constructed, so they work in a cycle. And then they return to their original state when the house is built. But just because a machine for conducting a certain task might exist, that doesn't mean it can also undo the task. A machine for building a house might not be capable of dismantling it. This makes the operation of the constructor different from the operation of the dynamical laws of motion describing the movements of the bricks, which are reversible. Marletto says the reason for the irreversibility is that for most complex tasks, a constructor is geared to a given environment. It requires some specific information from the environment relevant to completing that task. But the reverse task will begin with a different environment, so the same constructor won't necessarily work. The machine is specific to the environment it's working on. Recently, Marletto, working with quantum theorist Vlatko Vedral at Oxford and colleagues in Italy, showed that constructor theory does identify processes that are irreversible in this sense, even though everything happens according to quantum mechanical laws that are themselves perfectly reversible. Marletto says they show that there are some transformations for which you can find a constructor for one direction but not the other. The researchers considered a transformation involving the states of quantum bits, or qubits, which can exist in one of two states, or in a combination or superposition of both. In their model, a single qubit B interacts with other qubits by moving past a row of them one qubit at a time. This interaction entangles the qubits. Their properties become so interdependent that you can't fully characterize one of the qubits unless you look at all the others, too. This may cause qubit B to be transformed from some initial perfectly known state B1 to a target state B2. As the number of qubits in the row gets very large, Marletto says it becomes possible to bring B into state B2 as accurately as you like. The process of sequential interactions of B with the row of qubits constitutes a constructor-like machine that transforms B1 to B2. In principle, you can also undo the process, turning B2 back to B1, by sending B back along the row. But what if you do the transformation once, and then try to reuse the array of qubits for the same process with a fresh B? Marletto and colleagues showed that if the number of qubits in the row is not very large, and you use the same row repeatedly, the array becomes less and less able to produce the transformation from B1 to B2. But Crucially, the theory also predicts that the row becomes even less able to do the reverse transformation from B2 to B1. The researchers have confirmed this prediction experimentally using photons for B and a fiber optic circuit to simulate a row of three qubits. Here's Marletto again. In the experiment that we did, we demonstrated this idea that In a toy model, you can get a very specific quantum transition where a single system goes from one state to another quantum state. And you can show that the transformation is irreversible in this sense, in the sense that you can approximate arbitrarily well this cycle for the way forward for this transformation. 
but you can't approximate with the same accuracy a cycle for the way backwards, for the reverse way. And this is why we call this transformation irreversible. That's an asymmetry to the transformation, just like the one imposed by the second law. This is because the transformation takes the system from a so-called pure quantum state, or B1, to a mixed one, or B2, which is entangled with the row. A pure state happens when we know all there is to be known about it. But when two objects are entangled, you can't fully specify one of them without knowing everything about the other, too. The fact is that it's easier to go from a pure quantum state to a mixed state than vice versa, because the information in the pure state gets spread out by entanglement and is hard to recover. It's comparable to trying to reform a droplet of ink once it's dispersed in water. This irreversibility is imposed by the second law. So Marletto says here the irreversibility is just a consequence of the way the system dynamically evolves. There's no statistical aspect to it. Irreversibility is not just the most probable outcome, but the inevitable one, governed by the quantum interactions of the components. Marletto says their conjecture is that thermodynamic irreversibility might stem from this. There's another way of thinking about the second law, though. James Clerk Maxwell, the Scottish scientist who pioneered the statistical view of thermodynamics along with Boltzmann, first described this way of thinking. Without realizing it, Maxwell connected the thermodynamic law to the issue of information. Maxwell was troubled by the theological implications of a cosmic heat death and of an inescapable rule of change that seemed to undermine free will. So in 1867, he sought a way to pick a hole in the second law. In his hypothetical scenario, a microscopic being, later called a demon, turns useless heat back into a resource for doing work. Maxwell had previously shown that in a gas at thermal equilibrium, there is a distribution of molecular energies. Some molecules are hotter than others. They're moving faster and have more energy. But they're all mixed up at random, so there appears to be no way to make use of those differences. Enter Maxwell's demon. It divides the compartment of gas in two, then installs a frictionless trapdoor between them. The demon lets the hot molecules moving about the compartments pass through the trapdoor in one direction, but not the other. Eventually, the demon has a hot gas on one side and a cooler one on the other. It can exploit the temperature gradient to drive some machine. The demon has used information about the motions of molecules to apparently undermine the second law. So information is a resource that can be used to do work. But this information is hidden from us at the macroscopic scale, so we can't exploit it. It's this ignorance of the microstates that compels classical thermodynamics to speak of averages and ensembles. Almost a century later, physicists proved that Maxwell's demon doesn't subvert the second law in the long term, because the information it gathers must be stored somewhere, and any finite memory must eventually be wiped to make room for more. 
1961, physicist Rolf Landauer showed that this erasure of information can never be accomplished without dissipating some minimal amount of heat, thus raising the entropy of the surroundings. So the second law is only postponed, not broken. The informational perspective on the second law is now being recast as a quantum problem. That's partly because of the perception that quantum mechanics is a more fundamental description. Maxwell's demon treats the gas particles as classical billiard balls, essentially. But it also reflects the growing interest in quantum information theory itself. We can do things with information using quantum principles that we can't do classically. In particular, entanglement of particles enables information about them to be spread around and manipulated in non-classical ways. Crucially, the quantum informational approach suggests a way of getting rid of the troublesome statistical picture that bedevils the classical view of thermodynamics, where you have to take averages over ensembles of many different microstates. Carlo Maria Scandolo of the University of Calgary says the true novelty with quantum information came with the understanding that you can replace ensembles with entanglement with the environment. Scandolo says taking recourse in an ensemble reflects the fact that we have only partial information about the state. It could be this microstate or that one, with different probabilities, and so we have to average over a probability distribution. But quantum theory offers another way to generate states of partial information, through entanglement. When a quantum system gets entangled with its environment, about which we can't know everything, some information about the system itself is inevitably lost. It ends up in a mixed state, where you can't know everything about it, even in principle, by focusing on just the system. Then you're forced to speak in terms of probabilities, not because there are things about the system you don't know, but because some of that information is fundamentally unknowable. In this way, Scandolo says probabilities arise naturally from entanglement. He says the whole idea of getting thermodynamic behavior by considering the role of the environment works only as long as there's entanglement. Those ideas have now been made precise. Working with Giulio Cirabella of the University of Hong Kong, Scandolo has proposed four axioms about quantum information that are required to obtain a sensible thermodynamics. That's one not based on probabilities. The axioms describe constraints on the information in a quantum system that becomes entangled with its environment. In particular, everything that happens to the system plus environment is in principle reversible, just as the standard mathematical formulation of how a quantum system evolves in time is implied. Scandolo and Chirabella show, as a consequence of these axioms, uncorrelated systems always grow more correlated through reversible interactions. Correlations are what connect entangled objects. The properties of one are correlated with those of the other. They are measured by mutual information, a quantity that's related to entropy. So a constraint on how correlations can change is also a constraint on entropy. If the entropy of the system decreases, the entropy of the environment must increase such that the sum of the two entropies can only increase or stay the same, but never decrease.
Scandolo says in this way, their approach derives the existence of entropy from the underlying axioms rather than postulating it at the outset. One of the most versatile ways to understand this new quantum version of thermodynamics invokes so-called resource theories, which again speak about which transformations are possible and which are not. Nicole Younger-Halpern is a physicist at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. A lot of this work is taking place within the subfield of resource theories. I think of the resource theory framework as a mathematical and conceptual toolkit in quantum information theory. I think of a resource theory as a simple model for any situation in which the actions you can perform and the systems that you can access are restricted for some reason. Quantum resource theories adopt the picture of the physical world suggested by quantum information theory, in which there are fundamental limitations on which physical processes are possible. In quantum information theory, these limitations are typically expressed as no-go theorems. They're statements that say, you can't do that. For example, it's fundamentally impossible to make a copy of an unknown quantum state, an idea called quantum no-cloning. Resource theories have a few main ingredients. The operations that are allowed are called free operations. Here's younger Halpern again. Once you specify the free operations of a resource theory, you have defined the resource theory. And then you can start reasoning about which transformations are possible and impossible, and operational tasks and so on. A resource is something that an agent can access to do something useful. It could be a pile of coal to fire up a furnace and power a steam engine. Or it could be extra memory that will allow a Maxwellian demon to subvert the second law for a little longer. Quantum resource theories allow a kind of zooming in on the fine-grained details of the classical second law. We don't need to think about huge numbers of particles. We can make statements about what is allowed among just a few of them. When we do this, Younger Halpern says it becomes clear that the classical second law is just a kind of coarse-grained sum of a whole family of inequality relationships. For instance, classically, the second law says that you can transform a non-equilibrium state into one that's closer to thermal equilibrium. Here's Younger Halpern. If we're asking how different is this quantum state from this quantum state, there are a number of different measures to determine whether that's the case. So which of these two states is closer to thermal is like the question, are you more athletic or am I more athletic? In order to answer that question, we have to perform a lot of measurements. We have to see how fast can you run? How fast can I run? How far can you run? How far can I run? How far can you stretch? How far can I stretch? So we need to check a whole family of inequalities. And so that's why we need to check a whole family of inequalities to measure what's essentially the distance to the thermal state in the resource theory. In other words, in resource theories, there seem to be a whole bunch of mini second laws. So there could be some transformations that could be allowed by the conventional second law of thermodynamics, in a sense, but forbidden by this more detailed family of inequalities. Sometimes I feel like everyone has their own second law of thermodynamics. Physicist Marcus Müller of the University of Vienna says the resource theory approach doesn't have any conceptual or mathematical loose ends. He says this approach involves a reconsideration of what we really mean by thermodynamics. 
it's not so much about the average properties of large ensembles of moving particles, but about a game that an agent plays against nature to conduct a task efficiently with the available resources. In the end, though, it's still about information. Younger Halpern says the discarding of information, or the inability to keep track of it, is really the reason why the second law holds. All these efforts to rebuild thermodynamics and the second law recall a challenge laid down by German mathematician David Hilbert. In 1900, he posed 23 outstanding problems in mathematics that he wanted to see solved. Item six in that list was to treat by means of axioms, those physical sciences in which already today mathematics plays an important part. Hilbert was concerned that the physics of his day seemed to rest on arbitrary assumptions, and he wanted to see them made rigorous in the same way that mathematicians were attempting to derive fundamental axioms for their own discipline. Some physicists today are still working on Hilbert's sixth problem, attempting to reformulate quantum mechanics and its more abstract version, quantum field theory, using axioms that are simpler and more physically transparent than the traditional ones. But Hilbert evidently had thermodynamics in mind, too, referring to aspects of physics that use the theory of probabilities as among those ripe for reinvention. Whether Hilbert's sixth problem has yet been cracked for the second law seems to be a matter of taste. Scandolo says he thinks Hilbert's sixth problem is far from being completely solved, and Scandolo finds it a very intriguing and important research direction in the foundations of physics. He says there are still open problems, but he thinks they'll be solved in the foreseeable future, provided enough time and energy are devoted to them. Maybe, though, the real value of re-deriving the second law lies not in satisfying Hilbert's ghost, but just in deepening our understanding of the law itself. Younger Halpern compares the motivation for working on the law to the reason literary scholars still reanalyze the plays and poems of Shakespeare. Not because such new analysis is more correct, but because works this profound are an endless source of inspiration and insight. Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Philip Ball's full article, Physicists Rewrite the Fundamental Law That Leads to Disorder, on our website, quantummagazine.org. Explore math mysteries in the quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quantum Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. <laughs>